0: evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Neffert Coaches Corner in March 2022. Wow, time is flashing by. We've got another fantastic 90 minutes of chat ahead. A really interesting subject. I'm really looking forward to tonight's uh, chat. As always, of course, I'm equally as excited and looking forward to sharing the time with my co-host and head of academy at Neffert, Spencer. Good evening, Spencer. How are we?
1: Very well. It's very kind, Ryan. It's nice to be uh, sharing the platform with you uh, yet again. I'm very well. Business end of the season at Neffa, so we've had quite a few games, another one today. So, uh, yeah, it's been a a little fun, hasn't it, mate? It is. You can see the bags under my eyes. You can see the grey hair coming through. This is all end of the season. Yeah, Ryan, you look like that anyway, don't you? Very true, yeah. Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, good evening everybody. Uh, welcome to the March Nefer Coaches Corner and tonight's guest is Gerard Jones. Now, Gerard is a UEFA A-licensed coach and has worked in a variety of of roles in football as a practitioner and a coach developer. His career has seen him work as head of coaching at Bristol Rovers, assistant under 21 coach at Bradford City, and an academy coach role at Rochdale. He's also worked as a coach developer for US Soccer, and I think he's got a meeting straight after this one tonight as well with the people in New York uh, with Football Association Wales and the Royal Moroccan Football Federation. Now, Gerard completed his master's degree in 2013 and is currently working towards a PhD in how augmented verbal instruction can be used by coaches to guide learners' search for performance solutions in football. Something, of course, we're going to cover throughout the course of this evening. But before we welcome Gerard, we've got an absolute belter of a question, haven't we, Ryan? You've built it up now.
0: You've built it up, haven't you? So, um,
1: yeah, no, really looking forward to
0: tonight's uh, uh, topic. And uh, one thing that we're going to be speaking about, uh, potentially lots, is, is scanning. Uh, so bespoke question tonight uh, around scanning. Um, so here we go. We're going to launch the question there. So the Norwegian football scientist, Jorday completed a study on player scanning and found that players that had a high frequency of scanning completed what percentage of accurate passes. Um, so have a go at that, have a little think, uh, put down um, what you think the answer is. Whilst you're doing that, housekeeping from myself, um, looking forward to speaking to as many of you as tonight as possible. If you've got a question to are tonight please put that in the Q&A box okay uh, in the Q&A box for all of your questions if you've got a general comment or you want to share your LinkedIn profile or your Twitter profile or anything like that then it's the chat box for that so Q&A box questions chat box for everything else right Spencer we're big fans aren't we
1: of of Gared Your Day's work we certainly are Ian absolutely there's some great work Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, um, Spencer, what's the answer?
1: Well, the answer is 756 points <laughs> with high-frequency scanning. And interestingly, medium frequency is 61% and low is 53%. And I can see we've got some uh, some very educated attendees. Oh, that there is? you go. Where, where, Ryan? Yeah. Yes. Well, it, it pays to scan, Spencer, is the answer, doesn't it? Just pay to scan, and something we're going to cover certainly this evening with Gerald. So Gerard, good evening, welcome.
2: Yeah, good evening, excited to be here, looking forward to sharing some cool ideas. So thanks for the opportunity.
1: No, thank you, and uh, thanks for giving up your time this evening to join us. So before we get into the, the number of uh, questions that we have from us and obviously from our audience tonight, um, you've completed a number of high-profile roles in football, uh, the last being with the Royal Moroccan Football Federation. Can you tell us a little about that role and what it entailed?
2: Yeah, so really fortunate to work with Oshan Roberts. Obviously, I was head-hunted by Osh who's now the assistant manager to Patrick Vieira in the Premier League, right, at Crystal Palace. So Osh was the national technical director at the time. He'd just left the Welsh uh, Football Association, uh, Football Association of Wales, where he was assistant manager and and obviously technical director. And my role was as an elite coach educator. So it primarily focused on, uh, you know, assisting on the pro licence, delivering... Uh, designing all the content, you know, delivering on the A license, getting the CAF convention, similar to like the UEFA convention for coach education. I was also the course director for the Advanced Youth Award and the Youth Award. Created a lot of the content and, you know, national coaching philosophy, playing philosophies, um, individualized training methods within the DTN and, and influencing the wider country, and the whole national program. And, and interestingly enough as well, I was going into clubs, mentoring a lot of the, the coaches at the pro level. So in the Betola Pro, that's their professional league. Yeah. It's the, the best league in Africa. So among some of the top leagues in the world, believe it or not, the infrastructure would surprise you in terms of the stadiums, uh, the media, the marketing. It's actually ranked, uh, last time I checked, it was ranked higher than even the the, uh, the Walsh Premier. So it's oh. quite up there in terms of some of the top, top leagues compared to some of the divisions in Europe, even yeah. in Scotland and what have you. Mm. Uh, and then obviously, uh, part of the role was mentoring the coaches within the DTM. So I was working with coaches like Ja Russo, who was the under 20s head coach at the time, he used to be the assistant manager to the Portuguese national team, which is incredible. Pro licensed coach, you know, uh, been a head coach, he's been an assistant coach, he's worked at Sporting, worked with Matinho, worked with uh, Pepe, he's worked with players like, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, in different levels at the the national team and obviously it's sporting. Prior to his move to Manchester United, he's gone to the Euros in 2012, World Cup in 2014, so he was one of the coaches I had to mentor, which is incredible, really. Fantastic
1: experience.
2: Yeah, Mm. you're like an imposter uh, syndrome, (laughs) so it's great. And, uh, you know, and and many other coaches, so I had to mentor coaches within the DTN from under-15s up to under-23s, deliver the national playing philosophy, that we designed with with our and the uh, coaching philosophy and then obviously how that shaped the coaches working the the professional clubs at academy level or technical directors and, and so on and, and organizing all those workshops as well as doing all the regional visits and that probably sounds like a lot already and then you know in addition to that <coughs> excuse me i'd often get asked to do what they call missions you know you get an order to mission and you'd have to go and you'd you'd observe a game, you might be watching Cameroon versus whoever, or actually going to watch Cameroon against Morocco, analysing it, creating a report. Uh, and of, of course, that would dovetail because everything that I did from uh, uh, coaching or analysis, we could then use as content on the courses. Yeah. So it was, it was a really good, it was a great, you know, opportunity to work with players at international level and, and of course, mainly coaches.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Sounds a, a great job. Um, so Gerard, throughout this evening we're going to speak about scanning, visual search and feedback. But before we get into the nitty gritty of those subjects, I'd like to cover the importance really of football language and clarity with football language. And what's been yeah. your observations? Because you've worked you know, in, in different countries and uh, how important is clear football language in environments?
2: Well, <clears throat> language is key. It's been something that I've tried to focus my whole career on, you know, even going back to some of the stuff that I've done in the early part of my career, you know, over 10 years ago, I've been trying to focus on clarity in the message because I think there's a lot of jargon that's often used. And I'll give a couple of examples, you know, so um, obviously I was a head of coaching at an EFL club. And interestingly, one night, great example, was one of the coaches, under 16s, said you're going to love the session tonight, Gerard, you know, been working on counter pressing, really going to love it. You're going to see the play, blah, blah, blah. We've been doing this at the other, it's going to be great. Oh, brilliant, looking forward to it. Watch the session. And as I'm watching the session, and normally, of course, you'd go through and you'd ask them, you know, what are the session intentions? You'd ask, you know, what are you trying to achieve and what have you? And you'd go through and you'd get an understanding before, you know, it's not always possible. And it just so happened, I was actually watching another coach that particular night, doing an observation, making this coach up, but I managed to watch a bit of the work that was going on with 16s. And of course, as head of coaching, you're always floating around anyway. And with this particular session, I'm watching, I'm thinking, I'm not seeing much counter pressing. Are we talking about the same thing? So I asked the coach, I said, oh, just give, what's your definition for counter pressing? And what I'd like to add is that you know, I'm not painting this coach in a bad light or the club or anything like that. It's a great example because, uh, long story short, the coach had a different definition to me. And it's not to say that my definition was right and his was wrong or vice versa. We just had a different interpretation for what counter pressing meant. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, okay. And anyway, look. You know, I asked around, and lucky enough, the cabinet manager was there that night. He had the under-18s coach who was there that night. So right across the the department, you've got all these full-time staff, part-time coaches. Every one of us had a different definition, slightly different. And I asked one of the players and even he had a different definition, so you know you're in trouble. So straight away, I said, well, this is a great example because we think we're talking about the same thing, but actually we're not, and we're making decisions on players and we're trying to measure progress, but we're not measuring from the same hymn sheet. So straight away, that's so critical, you know, in terms of what do we actually mean? And, and I always use this phrase and we'll go into it in a bit more detail tonight around feedback and the choice and use of words and how that guides perception, visual search, scanning, and, and of, of course, uh, your intentions and your understanding. And I always say feedback given isn't necessarily feedback received and understood. So how do you know that they know that we're talking about the same thing? How can you check for understanding? And to give another example, you know, coaching in Morocco was incredible because everything I did, I had to do in my second language. So I didn't do anything in English. Everything was delivered in French for me. I'm not talking about any anybody else. So obviously I would present in French, I would coach in French, every now and then from obviously some Arabic words as well. But interestingly, when I'm coaching in French, I was probably clearer in my language than I was in English. I'm in English and I don't know if that's because I've got a wider vocabulary in English so we can go around the houses we can use more big words and overcomplicate the sentence but actually I would be a lot more clear and concise to the point with the the questions I'd ask or the direct feedback that I'd give in that second language and it got me thinking about the importance of whether it's verbs or whether it's whatever it may be in that sentence the importance of having just a couple of words rather than a long sentence, a bit like a tweet. Can you get there in X number of characters or less? And um, how well can the players have an opportunity to to construct that language? So then we did a lot around that. So rather than us coming in from our perspective of what we know and what I know that works in America, in England, wherever, actually what goes on in Morocco, what are some of the terms that you would use? So. You get a a clarity from the players that they're co-designing with you and together you agree. So it's not me imposing anything on them. They're actually having an ownership of, well, we would describe this as that. Great, okay, so now we're clear on what we're saying. And Jurgen Klopp's one of the best at this. Jurgen will often use, whether you call it trigger words, whatever phrase you want to use, it'll be one or two words, but it'll instantly paint a picture So if it's jump, everyone knows what jump means Mm. on how they will react and press on people. If it's press, if it's uh, balance, whatever it is, and it will back that up with video. And that's obviously useful when you're talking about a a multicultural environment, players across different nationalities, the man have a great grasp of English. So it's really key. And I would say for any coaches, just in summary, listening, try and co-design with players and certainly your staff be a great exercise to do, get the flip chart paper out, talk about some of the player actions that would occur in that particular area or scenario on the pitch. So if you're talking about whether you're in your own half and you go into the detail of how you might construct and build up an attack or final third or wherever it is on your roadmap, and then go into really deep dive in, what are some of the the words that we would use to describe these player actions and the principles? You'd be amazed by the, the content that comes out. And then you can start to dive a little bit deeper into going, well, is that the best word or not? Do the players understand that? Is, is that you know player appropriate? Would they describe it in the same way? Is that helpful in, in guiding what, what we want them to do and guiding their search, which we'll obviously talk about later. Um, and I would say for anyone, just be really simple in your, in, in your messaging, which is really difficult to do, right? But Just be really simple in your messaging. And again, don't assume that they know what we're talking about, because players will nod and they'll say yes, but how do we know that they know? And that's gonna be one of the biggest challenges for the coach is recognizing that and understanding that, as I said, right at the start, feedback given isn't necessarily feedback received and understood. So how can you get clarity around your message? Would an
0: extension of that be to do it in French as well, or just not? Just leave it. Leave the French <laughs>
2: I'll do that. I can do that. No problem. Yeah. I'll, I'll probably be even quicker than that. Experience. Yeah, I don't
1: think we'd get very far here if, if we did it all in in, in French, Chase. Man. No, I, I don't know much. Javelot. Dr- chocolate glass civil players about my barrel with friends yeah i'm quite impressed by that actually spencer yeah thank you that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's really interesting <laughs> to paris 11 years of age you know i need a chocolate ice cream so uh... necessities necessities spencer um very good and,
0: uh, to, Me, I, to, I, to, to, I totally agree Joe. the absolute clarity of of, of language and you know, football is such a, a throwaway line of a game of opinions, but the game of opinions, is, 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 as you said, it manifested itself in you you can use whatever word you like. And, you know, that doesn't happen in other right. industries, does it? Aviation or, or medicine or, or anything like that. There's a word I want to ask you about. I want a word I want to ask you about. And, that you know, we've heard the, uh, the terms, you know, scan, see the pictures, check your shoulders. I, that's what I had. Check your shoulders, check your shoulders. Um you know, over and over. Yeah. Can you define what scanning is and why it's important to player development?
2: Great question. Obviously, it's interesting because every term is probably linked to a, uh, without getting too philosophical or academic, linked to like a paradigm of thinking. And I would be more around, and obviously a lot of the word that Gia, done, 10 out of 10, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, probably more towards like a Ben Barlett, constrained led approach, Neil, you know, Keith David's ecological dynamics. For anyone that doesn't know, definitely check those out. Because I wouldn't use the word scanning. I, my preference would be towards more visual search, and that's how I would define it, is that it's exploratory behaviour of a player searching for information from the environment in order to come up with their own solution. Simple. But... How they do that is the key, Mm. and I think it's you know, you made a great point there. Like, coaches will go, You've got to scan more. What what, what does that even mean? Yeah, um, check your shoulder. Well, what am I looking for when I do that? Um, open you know, all these little phrases that we've heard over the years or we've said, and there's a difference between uh, looking and seeing. So, think about that definition that I gave around exploratory behavior because you, I can I can uh, look loads and I can turn my head. Doesn't mean I'm seeing what I need to see. So actually I can see nothing. And also where you look, doesn't necessarily mean where you're attending to because you can also get information outside of your peripheral vision. So I think for coaches in, in simple terms, how can you design practices and use feedback in such a way that guides the player to be able to, and I'll use this phrase a lot tonight, optimally grip onto things, whether it's, right, I've seen there's a gap between Spencer and Ryan there. I can probably play between that lines and break that line with a pass. Or I can disguise and and play with a bit of deception, or I can do this or I can do that. But that's the key is the, the coach isn't necessarily telling them what to do, where to look and how to move. But for the player to be able to have that capability, the ability to be able to, search themselves and identify what they need to, and then come up with their own solution. Whereas I think the way that scanning is often defined by other people, and even the way that they coach, it still very much relies on the coach, pretty much telling them where to look, what to do, and how to move. And the danger with that is that then that player becomes, as you guys know, very dependent upon that coach for the solution, because the game's forever changing. It's random, it's chaotic, it's unpredictable. So when something does change, it's not like what we've trained. What's the player going to do? He's going to look to the coach for the answer. And we don't want that. If we're talking about scanning or visual search or whatever we want to use, we want that player to be able to be adaptable in the moment, game responsive.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really, I think, you know, we see it, you know, working with young players as well, you know, uh, there's the, a the difference isn't there between moving your head about and, and, and looking at it, and actually as you say sort of seeing seeing things and, and I think it, it's a, it's just a fascinating as we spoke about at the start it's such an important part of, 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 of development knowing how to then fit it in and, and, and work with it effectively is, is obviously what we're what we're here to talk about
1: no really good Spencer yeah 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 I mean it's a massive part of communication isn't it visual search and uh, but I don't know about you, Joe, when I went through the badges up to A license, it's something that's not really touched on by the Federation in England. I mean, why do you think that is that coaches aren't taught about how important that this skill is?
2: I think a lot of it's probably because, and again, there's a long way to go, you know, with the coach education in this country and, and all over the world, unfortunately. I mean, we've been on one of those courses with a Federation or, or delivered it, whether it's CAF, UEFA, uh, U.S. Soccer or, or AFC or whatever. Um, and there's a lot of good work, but they're often dictated by trying to shoe on topics in and design these long days where there's no real breaks. And it's almost, have that. Um, it is getting better. I mean, I've seen a lot of the stuff that the FA have, have designed now around the new UA4C and, and obviously other courses. And it's more around seeing the coach in their context, which is a lot better But from years gone by, to answer your question, it's very much been that they've they've prioritised either tactics or formations or everything else other than the stuff that you really need to get good at, which is parent engagement, designing environments like we're talking about, how do you get better at that, communication, scanning, visual, all these things. And there's never really been an opportunity where coaches can learn that without either having to research it and even then, there's limitations in the research, or, you know, there might be certain terms that are academic language that people are like, that doesn't make any sense to me. And I, I agree with them. Um, so it's not necessarily the easiest thing to digest. And where do they go? Other than what we've all had to do, which is like learn on the go and pick people's brains and be curious ourselves. Um, I think, again, one of the biggest limitations has probably been because the way coach education was designed position the coach as this oracle of all knowledge because we were taught that in order to be effective as a coach, and we use these words drill, which is military, it's militant, and instruction, it was all designed around controlling behaviour based on years gone by, tactics of society and what went on in the 1950s and 1930s and before then, where you've got a group of learners, students, whatever, players, how do you control all these kids or people without them going crazy? So you've got to control them in activities that restrict their thinking, but allow them to be work on repetitive actions. In this uh, belief that by working on repetition, things will get better. And then when you put them into more complex, changing, random environments, they'll be able to do that. But the answer is that that's not the case. And I think you know if we reflect on our level two, you A for B, you A for A. We were taught stop, stand still, demo. Tell them everything. Show them the answer. Fill them with information. Now I've got this glass of water. It was almost like that, wasn't it? It was fill the player up and see how much stays in the glass at the end. Yeah. But that's not that the research
1: shows that uh, you know, under pressure that players can't take that information, can they? Uh, there's been plenty exactly. of uh, academic research you know in that in that particular field as well. but yeah, I always found it you know really interesting I And mean, when I worked um, at an EFL club and uh, as we mentioned when we spoke yesterday, I was telling you the story when I used to get the under 14s to 15s I said, right okay lad so who's been taught how to to search to scan And uh, I remember one group of about 16 boys and one put his hand up and says, all right so so where did you learn how to do that So not at Manchester City. So they did it. But the academy and I worked, and very, you very know, similar story at many academies, it's yeah. something that I had not really come across. Uh, and when you get into 15, 16, you'd hope that the work's been done a little bit earlier to really help them and enhance player development.
2: I agree. <laughs> and, and I think, obviously, they, they probably didn't know, so they've not been exposed to it. And then, as a result, we were exposed to those things. But I think now we're becoming more aware and we're, we're trying to look at the the coach as this learning designer and that the player should be at the centre of that experience. And I think that's where we've repositioned our lens um, and it, and it's not to say that you can't give answers or you can't help players because of course you can, but it's understanding that it's, I think we've got to be careful of these dualisms where we're saying what we're all this way or we're all this way. And that's a danger that we're in right now. We we've gone from one extreme to perhaps the next, Well, of course, coaching is about who's the person in front of you, and it does depend. And you've got to decide what that sweet spot is. But, of course, there's there's definitely better advantages to guiding players around implicit information rather than explicit, where it's rules and it's restrictive. When we're talking about learning and being able to perform under pressure, which is what this topic is all about that we're talking about tonight, because players Mm -hmm. have to be able to make decisions at the speed of sight, if not before. The game is like that it's so demanding and players have to be able to solve problems so we have to create environments that look like the game but also their game what does their game look like and allow players to become really clever and skillful around creating their own adaptable solutions to game problems and that that's going to be the magic and um- Really
0: interesting in terms of moving it on into something practical. Um, you know, what type of practices can be delivered will increase that quality of perception and visual exploration. And I context that in. You no, know, I, I I rated myself as, a, as as not a bad young player uh, until one
1: coach come along Look, and well, told not me. not that Gerard. I've people talk. About pace, but uh,
0: uh, well, uh, well, well, now that's not the topic now, is it? Um. Uh, Uh, and one coach came along and told me I'm facing the wrong way around of course he was right I was facing the the wrong way around and 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 I never visually scanned at all you know at 16 17 um I was really industrious to try and fix that I had tape on my shoulders I was like Chris Martin I wrote wrote things on my hand scan you know all this but it wasn't habitual to me so I think sort of double question really what practices can be delivered and kind of by what age does it need to be ingrained?
2: Right. You've given me a couple of things to think about there. Um, let me write my thoughts down now because it will guide me, um, <laughs> which is great. So, first thing I would say is that you should, if we're designing real representative environments that encourage players to have to search, have to look for information, that should be at the early stage when they're, when they start kicking the ball. It's not that we should be saying that they can only do it at this age or this age. I think that's very stagist. And that implies that learning and development is linear when in fact it's yeah. non-linear. And that'd almost be like saying, and everyone who's listening who has got kids of their own. Any parent would will agree to this. That'd be like saying to your child, no, 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 you should be finished with crawling now. You know, come on, when are you going to start walking? Yeah. The kids will walk and crawl and, and pull up and they're navigating through perceptual space, aren't they? They're figuring stuff out and how to coordinate their body. You can't really say to a kid, this is how you need to do it. You know, William, my little boy, is three now, nearly four, totally different to Joshua, was walking before them, whatever. Joshua could walk, but realise he could get on the floor quicker, he would crawl. And I think the point linking it to football and practice design is that everyone will get there in different stages, but we are all making decisions based on time, space, and number variations. So whatever obstacles you put in their way, that interference, that's going to encourage players to have to, no different to a baby and a child, you know, how do you cross the road? You encourage it from that. I always remember that great advert. I Do not Do you remember it with the hedgehog? To encourage kids to cross the road, and he had to, the hedgehog used to look both ways before he crossed. Do you remember, remember that one? <laughs>
1: Oh, it was, it was I remember it, the Green Cross Code. Is it around that time? Is it? I, I don't It was like,
2: I mean, I'm 32 now, maybe 33. It was when I was in primary school. How so so
1: much older was Gerard? I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> strange, strange animal of choice, yourself, though.
0: Probably the most run over animal of all time.
2: I know. I know. Don't ask me. <laughs> Brilliant. But, uh, but getting back to the football, of course, is, is you've got to create environments where they're, it's encouraging players to have to look. So I can build on that answer. If you're designing environments where they're looking at a cone or a mannequin, and I might offend some people in this room, and that's okay, Like everyone's allowed their preference. That's not giving them any perceptual information because a cone doesn't move, a mannequin doesn't move. Yeah. I'll tell you what the players will get really good at. They'll get great at playing against metal men. They'll get great at that, but put them in an environment where it changes, and often what you'll find is that there'll be a there'll be a problem. If you design practices where a passes to b, I see loads of coaches focus on it. I passing drills as an example or whatever, and it's very um, scripted. The coach will spend more time coaching the drill per se, the activity, than he will the players' actions and choices, because the player doesn't have to look in order to go, right, I'm going to receive the ball off Spence and I'm going to go to Ryan, because he's already been told by the rules of the practice, that's where I have to go. If you were to then say to him, so that's an unopposed activity, for an example, and I'm not saying that unopposed is bad, I'm just making a reference. If you were to say, Spencer is stood behind me waiting for his turn and Gerard's about to receive the ball, and before he does, he's going to have to find a way to play into to to Ryan. If Spence can press me from behind, and if that pass is slow or not the best, he can nick it or he can apply some sort of pressure. Now I've got to decide how and when do I go to receive that ball? Do I go to meet the ball? If coaches want to do those passing drills, you can do passing unopposed, where players are playing in groups, but there's no threat on the ball but there's interference because they're all in and out of each other. You can do more game-like activities, whether it's, you know, people talk about rondos, it could just be a possession practice, it could be directional. And this is where I'm getting to my answer is, is there a clear method of scoring? Is it directional or does it offer direction of some kind? And does it promote the ability to have to play forward or find a way to go forward, wherever that forward direction is? Because if it's got those things, and it's in, and it ideally it's opposed, it involves a defender, because that defines the game, along with many other things like offside and things like that. Yeah. You know, if you didn't have a defender, you wouldn't need to you wouldn't need to pass. You know, you'd have to you just dribble. So I would say to coaches, design activities around, and I use this four C approach, and I've used this my whole career. It's helped me to sort of guide whether or not the practice is organised, game realistic, challenging, and so on, is first one is choice. So have the players got choices to make, problems to solve? Have the decisions? Does it look like their game and the challenges that they're going to face? Does it promote competition? Competition is huge. Is the competition of some kind, whether it's points, whether it's scoring mechanism, whether it's uh, me playing against Spence, and we're in our little 1v1 duel, and I've got to find a way to outplay him. Or whether it's um, if we score in three passes or less, uh, uh, if we intercept the ball from, and we count in three passes or less, it equals two goals, because you want to encourage quick transition and counter-attacking, as an example. Or whether it's, um, you know, we're trying to play into the number nine, find a way to, to break the line to play forward quickly. If you score scoring the goal, it's worth one. But Every time the defending team scores it deducts one goal off your tally. So your team could be killing it, especially if they've got an overload and they're winning 3-0. But now Ryan's team, which is defending, they intercept and break out and score. Now it's 2-1, or it goes 1-1 or 2, you know. So there's little ways you can do it. There's many other examples, but competition is huge because it motivates players, it gives them focus. And let's face it, the object of the game is to score more goals than the opposition. That is the simplest objective of the game. Uh, I would have challenges. So what individual challenges as well as team challenges are in there to guide players? And then the last C is clarity. What's the relevance to me and why? So if you're Ryan in that practice where he needs to get better at how can he play forward in order to to, uh, break a line or can he see who the best options are, you might just say to Ryan, you know, how can you see the opponent's goal before you receive the ball? Yeah. That will naturally open his body shape. I'm not telling him to open his body shape, but I'm asking him where to look. Or you might say, um, wh- where can you stand in order to eliminate the defender with your first touch or no touch? Where can you stand or where can you run? I could move here. Or actually, sometimes best move is standing still. I might not even need to take a touch. I could do a no-touch turn. Or I can so then he's got to figure out a way of disguise and deception, he might drop a shoulder sell it to the defender or he might go actually I'm going to receive on the back foot and play and eliminate him that way or I might do a front foot take eliminate, there's a million and one so you're designing activities that all of a sudden there's a clear target whether it's a target player, whether it's an end zone, whether it's a goal, whether it's a counter goal, there's got to be a clear method of scoring and often when you're designing those activities whether it's Whatever your shape is, if it's often a lot of coaches do rectangles and squares. I like to be a bit more out the box. It's not to say that you can't always do that, but can you go horizontal? Can you do a hexagon? Can you do a circle? Can you do a a funky one? It depends what you, of course, what you want to get out of the session and what players you're trying to develop and individualise your training. Um, But to answer your question, I've been looking at forcey approach designing practices that are probably more opposed and unopposed yes. more game like if it's not, again, has it got some kind of contextual interference because at least then it's challenging players to have to look. If they're not looking, they're not able to come up with their own solution. Uh,
0: so, sorry. So just that second part of my question in terms of,
2: do could, could
0: you feel like you could, could visual exploration at high frequency, Into a 16-year-old who's currently not doing it? Or is that
2: going to be difficult? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. Why why couldn't you? Because I think you've... I think there's limitations on what people perceive. Obviously, of talent, I'm saying, and obviously we've got confirmation bias and all these things, and we've got all these beliefs in our head that maybe it's too late for that boy. Um, But I would be saying, why couldn't you say to a player... um, who would you need to see in order to receive the ball to eliminate the, the first line of pressure? Who would you need to see? Maybe where my number 10 is. So now you're developing a relationship with his with his units. Or how can your pass or your action eliminate two or more defenders in this situation? So I'm not telling him what to do. He might dribble, he might pass, He might. but he's looking for a way on how. Can you develop that? Yeah, absolutely, because I'm giving him a challenge. And then the key of the coach then is, looking at where does he look so can you start to study where does the player look how does he adjust his body and even the timing of the looking you know is he is he getting the most information that he can whilst they're taking touches on the ball is he scanning or searching in between touches is he not doing that you know because that'll inhibit depending on when he looks and how he looks will influence how much information he can physically get on board. Mm. Over 75% of the information players receive is through their eyes when they play football, the majority of the information. So again, it's all about the timing. If you can say to a player, just have a look at how and when Ryan starts to move before you before he receives the ball, what do you notice? Bring him off to the side. You know, And that could be your intervention, observation, feedback. Just step outside for a minute. I just want you to watch Spencer as he's playing, and just look for what he does. Oh, brilliant. Now tell me, what did you notice? Well, I noticed Spencer does this. And it's almost like Ryan's recognised that as well. Ryan's already on that. He's on his bike. He's gone. He's making that run. As Spencer's about to take his touch, or as he's shifting it out, he's already gone. So wh- why do you think he knows that? What's he had to do in order to know where the defender is? Or why did, why did Ryan adjust his body then, really late, that, that minute? Because the defender just stepped up. So he knew that actually he could walk backwards, play off the blind side of the defender, receive a tip. I mean, I'm giving really probably detailed answers. They probably wouldn't answer it like that. Some might. Yeah. You, you could have a dialogue with a 16-year-old and guide his eyes. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I've just taken that whole thing as a massive compliment. Like those things actually happened.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, just, I've just changed your world, mate. I've I'm, your I'm, world. I'm done
0: for the night. I'm done for the night. What you're saying is, is I was a world-class visual scanner. Just end the webinar, yeah. like yeah,
2: yeah. Well, click that, <laughs> mate. That's some, sound, that you, like.
1: uh, some of the language that you've used in there, you know, when you, you speak to the players, and you say, you know, look at where the other players, look at where the going. The importance of using external cues. I mean, is that something you elaborate on a bit, and how how valuable that is for players?
2: Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of work that's gone on uh, with various, various offers, but basically you've got what's called internal focus of attention and external focus of attention. That originally came from a woman called Gabriel Wolf, Dr. Gabriel Wolf, if anyone wants to look at her work. There are limitations in it, but in general, the the concept is quite good in that internal focus of attention is where language is directed more, the mechanics of the body and the movement. So again, we're taught on coach education courses to give technical detail. We have to give real rich technical detail. But what we've found across a number of different sports, and she's spent her whole career studying this, whether it's NFL, soccer, you name it, invasion sports as well, non-invasion. She's found that, Coaches who focus on the mechanics of the skill and break them down, which is the internal, leads to uh, a breakdown in pressure when they have to apply it. More injuries, believe it or not, because they have to coordinate the body to fit this ideal technical model of how to do it, this pattern or this correct technique. And there's an emphasis on the correct style and technique, um, which I know is is flawed because one technique can't fit for every situation. It's it's silly. Um, there's a demotivation and often there's a, a huge dependency on the coach solving the problem rather than the players and also where they look is restricted you're actually restricting their peripheral vision and their their ability to search because you as you just said the language is key because they're not guiding their attention towards the environment which is the external they're looking internally so looking at where's my foot placement where's this where's that That's not to say that you can't give information that might be more internal, but it's understanding how and when. Now, the advantage what I would lean more towards, and I'd explain this within an ecological dynamics approach, would be that information that guides the attention of the player, their search externally, i.e. the environment, is better. Because you're asking them um, and you're giving them the license to explore and experiment you're asking them to look for information from the environment, whether it's your body shape or recognizing that actually Spencer's a bit off balance here and he's placing a lot of weight on his right foot. I can probably expose him on that. They're looking and they're searching and they'll pick up things and they'll learn to pick up things subconsciously as they get better at it. That's better because now they can coordinate their body in such a way that they're adapting their body to the, to the problem. So they're creating their own game solution. So then the language has to guide the search externally as opposed to internally. And just to finish that off, you know, I would say to anyone listening, every player has their own unique movement signature. So if we know that we're all different, you know, look at my body type chunky and compared to you guys, but we're all different. You get some guys six foot, whatever. So so to imply that, you know, and even for me to maybe demo that, ideal way of striking that ball or making that movement is wrong. I mean, even if we look at the, the game itself, Mbappe plays the game very differently to Ronaldo, who plays it very differently to Van Dijk, who plays it differently to Foden, so on and so on. So everyone's unique. Everyone's got their own little style and identity. So the challenge for us then is to get them really good at what is it that makes them good in the first place. How can we turn that strength into a, into a super strength? Get them looking for information from the environment because all the information is there. Everything they need, whether it's to eliminate that defender, to press, when to press, as that ball's travelling, do you think is that defender in good possession or bad possession? Is in bad? Why is he in bad? Right? Maybe we can jump now. How do we set a trap? Now you're developing players to become more game responsive and they're almost playing in the future. And then the type of feedback you give is, is really crucial in doing that. And I would say any any information that guides people towards the environment, you're on to a winner. Because now you're developing players that are less dependent on you for the solution or the ideal solution. And what they are doing is they're creating their own adaptable movement solution, which is huge, right? We we want skillful players. We want creative thinkers, problem solvers. Excellent.
1: Ryan.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. So one of the things that we've done um, at Nefa, we installed the the, the Result virtual reality platform about about 12 months ago now, Spence, wasn't it? Um, uh, To help players in this particular particular area. You know, we could monitor perception and decision making based on perception. Um, do, Do you have any experience of working with these tools and do you see them as valuable?
2: Yeah, I think it's great. I think anything that you can do to, again, find different ways for players to learn and then digest information is really, really cool. I know there's a few guys at the minute who are exploring with virtual reality and and it's, it's incredible, and especially how you can make it so real to yeah. their game and then you're guiding them on where they look and they can put it on and, and it makes it more interactive. It's probably different. I think probably going back to... Um, maybe my own biases. I think anything that's in, a, in additional uh, support, if it helps players learn, fantastic. But does it, as long as it, this would only be my preference. It doesn't mean it's, it's right or wrong. As long as it doesn't replace. Yeah. Because obviously they're not avatars. Now, if they were playing in an avatar world and they were playing in a in a computer game, and that's how they a bit like, those games that we grew up watching in the nineties, like, I don't know what it would be like, Tron or something stupid. Yeah. yeah. And they're going in, then knock yourself out, probably spend all day getting the headsets and do that. But the reality is, is that they're playing on grass or they're playing on turf. They're playing against players in a real environment. And those environments will change. The wind will have a huge factor. There'll be a lot of things that, you know, you have to smell and feel and, and sense. That you might not get in a, in a, a virtual world. Mm. I think the virtual world can complement, but it doesn't necessarily mean it can substitute. But what a great opportunity to train players and get them to look into the real micro details. You know, especially if you haven't got access to, you know, facilities or whatever. It's a rainy day or whatever. It's great. Mm. It's
1: been good, really, with players coming back from injury as well, Gerard. So they take parts out of the grass, uh, and it's helped with their development. So uh, when they come back, they're they're not miles behind. We had a we had a boy, um, Alex Ryan? was out for about four months, uh, broken wrist, and uh, spent lots of time in you know, the bezel, and uh, he came back, and it didn't take him too long to adapt again, which was really positive. Uh, Ryan, we're we're actually at break time, which is unbelievable because uh, that's. that's but it's been really interesting um, so far. There's a couple
0: of questions that we're going to get to in the second half. Um, for regular viewers of the Coaches Corner, we know that half-time is also a question from our guest to you guys. Um, oh, God, right, during the break, um, what would you like uh, the people tuning in to think about? What question would you like to ask them?
2: Yeah, do you want me to pose it now, or, or can I actually type it in the group chat or okay. both?
0: Is it now verbally and then type it in for us. Yeah,
2: okay. So, I would say one well, of the best questions going off the back of what we've just been discussing and be truthful to yourself it's not about what's right and wrong, it's more understanding why in your context. How would you describe your coaching feedback currently if you were to place it on a continuum of internal versus external and why? because then we'll get to see actually what goes on in, in the audience's room and maybe we can unpack some of that stuff.
0: Great great question. Um, okay, if you can just type that in the chat box for everybody, that would be great. Um, we'll have a five-minute refreshment break and comfort break now. So it's about 18 minutes past. So uh, We'll be back just after 22 uh, minutes past uh,
1: for the second half uh, of the webinar. We'll see you very shortly.
0: See you soon.